Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. If you haven't already, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Garrett, Ben, Jerry, Janet, Robin, and John and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Ben McClough. Ben is a researcher for the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences, where he is using stable isotopes as a tool for exploring spatiotemporal patterns and ecosystem processes. In doing so, he hopes to contribute to methods which aid in fishery management and conservation efforts. Much of this work has been centered around Pacific salmon in Alaska, where Ben has previously worked as a field researcher for the UW Alaska Salmon Program. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really like hearing about people's backgrounds. So how did you first get interested in fisheries to begin with? Yeah, I ask myself this uh, all the time, actually. I think it's one of those <laughs> things that makes a lot more sense in retrospect. Um, I'd always really been fascinated with science generally and really just ecology, not fisheries specifically. Um, so I came here for my undergrad and, and got an ecology degree and, and really gravitated towards a lot of the marine biology courses. And there's a great fishery school here at UW. And so there, I just started taking a lot of those fisheries focused classes as electives. And I was like, wow, this is this is particularly interesting. This is something that I'm, I'm really, really interested in. Um, and I, I really fell in love during my first fieldwork experience, which, as you mentioned, was up in Alaska. And in retrospect, you know, I remember being like a sixth grader checking out aquarium books from the library instead of novels like my peers. And so it's one of those things I think you look back and you're like, ah, oh, this all adds up. I was like, maybe I was meant to be a fishery scientist. But yeah, I think that like there, there was no real like defining moment other than going up to Alaska that I can point to as like how I ended up where I am. Yeah, for sure. So you touched on it a bit, but could you go through the general path you took to your current position back at the University of Washington? Yeah, it's it's a wonky one. Um, I went to school here at UW. I grew up in Wisconsin on the shores of Lake Michigan, and maybe that contributed to uh, my love for, for water. But I got a degree here in ecology, and I actually took a limnology class here, and I saw someone wearing an Alaska Salmon Program t-shirt. And... I don't know, as a kid from the Midwest, I remember just like looking at that and thinking like, wow, could you imagine going to Alaska? Like, I can't imagine that people go to Alaska. To me, I think even as an undergrad being in Seattle, it seemed like such an insane thing for someone to do. Like, you know, maybe there was like 20 people a year that went and studied in Alaska. It seemed like such a, like a crazy thing. Um, and I, I just sort of like networked my way to getting an opportunity to go work up in Alaska for the summer. That that just really sort of lit my lit my brain on fire. I, I was just sort of in love with, with everything having to do with that. Um, and there was a project that was in the same lab that was sort of running the Alaska Salmon Program, where I had the chance to come work as a technician, and that was working on fish otoliths. I was just here cutting over the otoliths day in and day out, really just like sample prep. But I was really lucky to be in a place where they treated their technicians like part of the lab, and I was able to go really learn a lot of the science from the people around me. And I went to lab meeting and I listened to all these grad students say words that I had no freaking clue what there's what, it, what any of them meant. I remember like, I remember the word confluence because I they, they were saying it so much like it was not a crazy word. And I was like writing it frantically down in my notebook to try to like research afterwards what it meant. And I think I think that experience seeing all the grad students have their own like autonomy and their own like place in science in the world made me want to do 
that myself. And so grad school was the next step for me. I went out to NC State to pursue grad school, which just ended up not being a super great fit. And as I was floundering out a bit out there, figuring out what I wanted to do next, uh, I reached out to my network here at UW. And there was a bunch of sort of half completed work from a late mentor of mine that needed to be dragged to the finish line. And Dr. Schindler, who I work for now, was really kind enough to offer to have me come back and bring some of that work to the finish line and, and work in this sort of like pseudo grad student researcher role that I'm in now and hopefully start working towards my dissertation in this role and just roll it over if I end up going to the University of Washington officially to continue my graduate education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am very jealous about the Alaska part because even growing up in Montana, I was always like, oh my God, Alaska. <laughs> I'm like dying to go. <laughs> It's, it's a special place. I, yeah. I feel like um, the trope of like someone who studies abroad and doesn't stop talking about uh, the place where they studied abroad is me with Alaska. Like, I think my friends are pretty tired of hearing about yeah. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um, well, I guess along those lines, what did you find were the best and worst parts about working in Alaska? Yeah, I, I think the best parts are the obvious, the like just scale and beauty and like really vibrance of those ecosystems. I think if you would have talked to me a couple of years ago, I would have said like the untouched beauty of those ecosystems. But we know better that they're maybe not as untouched as as the they might have seemed to my first eyes there. And yeah, I don't know, being in a place where there are thousands of salmon just like swimming through the rivers and there are bears around and, and bald eagles are like a thing that no one even cares about anymore because there's there, there's so many of them around is I just wow I, I don't think you can replicate that in in, in any way the worst part I, I Alaska's not known for its weather <laughs> the the place where I was Chicknick Lake is it roughly translates to like big wind and then we had like 50 mile an hour windstorms and so that's always a challenge to deal with and and it is isolating I think it's really fun to be isolated for a bit like Two months is, is, a, is right. a really long time to ration your Wi-Fi and not be able to see some of your loved ones. And so there, there absolutely is that trade-off. Yeah. In my mind, I'm like, oh, who wouldn't want to work in Alaska? And I was like, there's probably not good spots parts about it as well. So. <laughs> yeah. We don't necessarily have to include this, but is the mentor you're talking about uh, Sean Brennan? Yeah. Yep. And I'm, I'm happy to include that. I'm, I think I'm going to mention him later on. But yeah, so I worked for Dr. Sean Brennan when I was a technician here, and he passed away when I was a technician. And so part of the reason that I'm here is that there's a lot of this work left over, and I just sort of like happened to be the tech at the time and sort of like know a lot of the methods, both in the lab and some of the analytical methods and things. And so mm-hmm. I think that also adds a lot of like gravity to my work is to be able to like come back and and finish the work of a mentor who like really meant a lot to me in a, yeah. at a crossroads in my academic life. So, yeah, he came and gave a talk. I went to, I got my undergrad at the university of Montana and he had this, like, oh, it was a relatively small talk that I just got lucky. I got to go watch and <laughs> played this figure uh, from the Odalith work of like showing the salmon going in and out. And it was like, blew my mind. I was like, this is yeah. the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I know that exact figure. Yeah. They, they like to show that. That's it. Yes. <laughs> Of a, of a seminar. <laughs> yeah, it is a good one. So I guess somewhat along those lines, can you talk about the research themes that you're focused on now with the work that you're like wrapping up and finishing up? Yeah, so uh, I work with stable isotopes and calcified structures, sort of 
generally, but in this case, and most of my work right now, otoliths, which um, I guess for those of you who don't know, are ear stones that are found in fish to explore a number of spatiotemporal patterns in fish. And um, as I sort of mentioned, I, I sort of fell into this work as a technician when I was working with Dr. Sean Brennan. And he was really a, a pioneer in using strontium signatures in otoliths to reproduce natal origin and movement patterns in fish across these river basins that, you know, for example, the Yukon River Basin, which is just absolutely massive. And so oftentimes we weren't able to, we didn't have the methods previously to be able to figure a lot of these spatiotemporal patterns out. And so this was sort of a big thing, especially in salmon, but for fisheries generally. And my work right now aims to sort of not only improve on some of those methods, so to increase the accuracy, increase their ability to be used in different places, but also to really expand their use cases to a number of additional ecological questions and, and explore a number of patterns that sort of might be related to climate change or resource use or or maybe the way that we manage our fisheries specifically in a mixed stock fishery like Pacific salmon. Cool. Do you have a specific part of that that you're most excited about or is it all pretty equal? It's. I think it's all pretty exciting. Um, I think the methods part is necessary, but a little bit less exciting. It's a little bit like sort of yeah. the nuts and bolts necessary to be able to use it. But for, I mean, for me to be able to, you know, reproduce these movement and production maps, when you finish something like that, I think it's just so incredible. I, I don't know. I don't think it'll ever lose its luster as to how insane it is to be able to GPS track fish throughout their lives using right. a little ear stone. And particularly in salmon, I think it's so cool because they literally return to you. They go like record all this information and then sort of just return right back to you and present you with uh, all the information. I think something that I'm really excited about that I would like to explore later in my academic career, whether that's my dissertation or otherwise, is sort of um, taking advantage of some of the other isotope signatures that are found in otoliths and other calcified structures to recreate some spatiotemporal patterns of environmental stressors, for example. So we could take oxygen, which is also found in the otolith, and, and maybe we can reconstruct some patterns of temperature across the landscape. And I think there's a lot to be done um, that pairs some of these other environmental recorders alongside the spatial data that we suddenly, that Sean really pioneered, and now we have. Mm. Oh, that'd be so cool. Do you know, is the signal while they're in the ocean really consistent or could you ever like delineate their movement patterns within the ocean like you can in like headwater systems there's really not the same level of variation once you get to the ocean as there is in freshwater systems and even in freshwater systems part of the limitation to using astronium isotopes is that you need to be in a place where there's a lot of geological diversity because that right. drives the diversity in strontium ratios and you need to have a pretty diverse set of ratios to be able to confidently say, confidently assign fish to a tributary. In the ocean, it gets pretty muddled. There is work that's being done to try to do some of these things. I think what they do is they pair salinity with something like strontium and they like sort of combine all of these things to, to sort of reconstruct broad patterns, but it yeah. gets tricky, I think, by just the nature of a lot of mixing of water in the ocean. Yeah, for sure. So you talked about this when you're going through your path to your current position, but you did spend a year in a PhD before deciding to move on from that program. And I remember reading about this on Twitter <laughs> when you were uh, talking about that process. And I was like, man, I think 
I wish more people knew that this was an option because I think there's lots of people that are stuck in situations that just don't work well for them and they just feel like there's no other choice. So could you talk a bit about that experience and how you came to your decision to leave? Yeah. You know, I went to Raleigh right after the pandemic, which was, I think, a hard time for everyone who was entering a grad program for a number of reasons. The funding situation everywhere was just really weird. I think that every PI had no idea what the heck their funding was going to look like and program and uh, projects were on hold. And I don't, it, it was kind of a, a time of a bit of a mess in academia as well as the rest of the world. <laughs> Um, and so because of that, I wasn't able to do an official visit. I didn't spend a ton of time there. And, and it was really, it was not that I felt the need to leave Seattle, but I don't know, everyone had told me you need to go somewhere else for grad school and you went for undergrad. And I think I really wanted to experience a different school of thought and all these things that we really value as academics, perhaps too much. <laughs> but I, I think quite frankly, it just wasn't a good fit from a number of perspectives coming from the Pacific Northwest. I'd really fall in love with my life up here and and working on Pacific salmon and, and having these really like broad ecosystem scale questions that we were answering that mattered so much to, to people and ecosystems in the region and mm-hmm. and really the world. Um, and, and also I, I, I'm an outdoorsman and I moved out here from the very flat Midwest in part because I loved the, the outdoor lifestyle and having mountains around and, and certainly part I think of struggling was just adjusting to a new place it was still like sort of half pandemic era. And, and so things were still a little bit difficult to just sort of associate to a new place. And my research project just really wasn't coming along the way that I had hoped. And frankly, I, I don't mean this to be a shot at anyone, but I was also in probably a department in a lab that wasn't a great fit for my own strengths and my own weaknesses and sort of the way that I think about science. And initially, I, I think we have a tendency as academics, you know, if you're at a grad program, you're in some way uh, inclined to sort of like shooting for something more. And I, I think that we have this tendency to hustle our way out of it. Um, and certainly I thought that I could just really hustle my way out of a bad fit. I think some part of me recognized early that, ah, this is like, it doesn't feel the way that doing science felt at my last stop. And I couldn't put a, a fi- I couldn't put a finger on it, but my initial thought is like, yeah, well, you're you're not working hard enough, and if you just absolutely grind it out and you succeed, then um, it'll everything will fall into place. And I think that's a, a way that we often think about things. It's also, I think, a very like toxic way to think about things. And I just I really enveloped myself in every waking moment working, whether that was on classes or research or the other things I was involved with at NC State and. I think from an outsider, I had a I had a I had a good run. <laughs> um, I I was helping with the American Fisheries Society subunit. I was involved with the graduate student community on campus. I was I forwarded my classes. I think I was meeting these like metrics of of hustling my way out of this sort of like funk. But it, it just it, that's just sort of not the way things work. And I think my mental health started to take a hit as sort of like things became more difficult as grad school does and you need the good fit to be there to sort of uh, boost you back up. And it became really a confounding thing where the worse my mental health became, the more I threw myself my work and it just became uh, a pretty nasty cycle. And at some point at a particularly bad week and I am the son of a therapist, I had to look at myself and swallow my pride and say like, this is not 
uh, aligned with my own personal philosophy around mental health and, and really prioritizing that. And I think it took a lot of talking to myself and my mentors and those around me and to, to really realize how far I had gotten from my own values on, on that and the way that I think about science and sort of like the purpose that I had for doing science. At some point, I remember just sitting down and thinking, how can I get out of here as fast as possible? And out of here, I mean, just like out of graduate school generally. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking at the grad students when I was here at UW and, and thinking, man, I just like, I, I don't know why people would would want to leave this. This is like such a cool place to be. And obviously there are issues with being a grad student that make it hard. Yeah. Certainly the, the, the compensation is the thing that people talk to the most. But I remember being so fascinated and excited about being a grad student. And here I was less than a year later thinking like, how the heck can I finish this up as quickly as possible? and take shortcuts to get there? And, and how can I parse down my research so that it just can be like finished as quickly as possible? And, and that's not the way that I'd ever thought about science. I think to a fault, sometimes I think about it in this really grandiose way, how can I change the world? Um, I think that's how a lot of us think as well. And uh, yeah, so at some point I, I really just had to swallow my pride and, and look at myself and say, you know, spending an extra year here suffering and, and bowing out with a master's is just simply not worth it even if it adds time to my career. And once I made that decision, it was just such an incredible weight off of my shoulders. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's there's like logistically difficult things. So like telling my advisor I was leaving and, and saying goodbye to my friends. I had, despite everything, I had made a community that I had really cared about. And it, it just, the, the structure of graduate school is such that it's difficult to leave and I want to re reiterate that I am immensely lucky that I had an opportunity waiting for me and that I had someone at a institution that I was interested in who, who vouched for me, frankly. Because part of the reason I don't think people leave is that I'm, it can add years to your career. Mm -hmm. And that opportunity cost can be crippling for a lot of people. And so I think a lot of people, especially those who are already living in a vulnerable spot because they're living on a grad student stipend it that 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 is either so daunting that they don't want to do it or it's just unfeasible to, to leave whatever little security you have um, especially right. in a field like ours where a lot of things are seasonal and it's all about playing the game i also will say i think a huge lesson of that is that there's a, a, a massive difference between struggling and suffering and mm -hmm. I could not tell the difference when I was at NC State. And grad school should be, uh, in some ways, a struggle. I come in every day and bang my head against code. <laughs> and that's a struggle, but I'm not suffering. I'm, I'm really, in, at the end of the day, I'm enjoying it, no matter how many times R crashes on me. But I don't think we have a broad enough discourse around what the appropriate definition of of um, a challenge in graduate school is because for me, any time that I was having, you know, really struggling at NC State, I think there was a little bit of this echo in my mind of people saying like, grad school should be hard. Like this is, this is like a hard period of your life. Like you should be challenged. And I would often say to myself, and this is toxic, but I, anytime something would go awry, I'd always say, you know, I want people to hold me to like this, the highest possible standard. Like I, you know what they, they are challenging me to like really struggle with my work to make it great. And so that's okay. But I think that's possible without 
suffering. Mm-hmm. And it, I th- that took a long time to figure out. And I think it makes me a better scientist going forward that I did. But yeah, I, I mean, it, it sucks. It, it did suck. But I am so, so, so much happier having left. And now in my role, I, you know, I know it's going to add time to my career, but I am so excited about what I'm doing now that that like doesn't even matter to me. I, I, I cannot imagine being in that place where science had become a drag anymore. Um, and to anyone who's sort of in that situation and considering it, I just think your mental health is, is never worth it. A and B your, your quality of science when you're suffering is just not the same. I think that's, that's another huge lesson is that part of the reason I was working so darn hard was that I was just not being efficient. I wasn't being a good scientist because I was suffering. And then that also fed into that sort of negative feedback loop. So there's a lot to consider. It's a scary process, but it was absolutely worth it for me. And I think it's worth it for anyone who's, who's in that situation as well. Yeah. To be determined if I include this, but so many of those things you said resonate way too well. I feel like I'm, I, I mean, I'm kind of in that, like, I'm so far committed and I love my projects. So I was like, okay, it's just like worth it. But I can yeah. 100% feel the like, not working as efficiently as I want to, because it's just kind of yeah. hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. God, I, nowadays I talk to my colleagues and I was like, yeah, I used to, there was a period of my life where I spent like 12 hours in a library a day. And I'm like, what did you, like, you didn't publish anything. What were you doing? And I was like, honestly, I have no clue. All I know is I was working so hard and I don't think anything came from it. Like, I don't, I have no idea what I was doing. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I don't know. It's funny from the perspective of a grad student, but I hopefully (laughs) there's professors thinking this too. It'd be nice to like reframe how we approach grad school in general and just like make sure people know that they can prioritize time with family and hobbies and approach it like a job rather than like a 24 hour dedicate your whole life to absolutely i also think a big thing that i'm struggling with is that there's this growing discourse whether it's on twitter or in real life that you can't both work hard and have um a mental health balance that you have to sort of choose between one of the two and i just completely disagree with that sentiment um i think that there are people that work more than 40 hours a week at some points in their career that are still taking care of their mental health and they're still like maintaining a work-life balance and vice versa. There are people who are, who are like not putting in enough work, but still struggling. And I think that, I mean, it's, you, it, it's so black and white that either you're like not hustling enough or you're yep. not, or you're taking care of your mental health too much. And that's, I think, silly. Yeah. Hope, hopefully we're working towards a more <laughs> sustainable. <Yes. laughs> way of being especially as I think about like going on to jobs after my PhD and I was just like I don't know if I can keep up like the same level like I need to set some boundaries at some point and like start sticking to them otherwise I'm gonna leave the field and I definitely don't want to do that so yeah I think Twitter has been a godsend for that I think now that people are talking about it fingers crossed it's Mm -hmm. starting to to come to a head but I also I feel the same way (laughs) yeah for sure well, I also wanted to talk about your interest in SciComm. Starting first, what are your favorite ways to communicate science with the public? <laughs> I think there's a disconnect between my favorite ways and the ways in which I do. Yeah. I love visual media. I think 
particularly in freshwater sciences, there's this big disconnect where people think that their their nasty little stream in their backyard is just like the most boring possible place to care about science. And, you know, a lot of middle America is just these, these little meandering streams. We don't have alpine lakes in Wisconsin, but there are ways to communicate that visually to to people. I've sort of started to explore video and just photo as mediums for doing that. And there's a lot of really incredible people who do that. There's a company called Freshwater Illustrated that makes incredible uh, sort of short films that make the freshwater world uh, look just as beautiful as the ocean. And that's a feat, but I think necessary for us to communicate to people who don't read scientific journals. Yep. Uh, the way that I use SciComm more often is Twitter. Um, <laughs> I, I think that just having a voice that reaches outside of your department in your little bubble is really important. And it's sort of a semi-casual, semi-professional space where we can let our hair down a little bit and talk both like colleagues, but also like humans to each other. And I think that's really, really valuable, particularly if we're talking about some difficult things about grad school and academia and all of these things that, you know, it's, it's good to have it out in the sort of public, public discourse. And I also have found more recently that a big part of SciComm for me is just the way that I present my own science. So whether that means like putting together really good, really clear presentations and making sure that I bring those to places where there are people who are, who can be impacted you know, we've all gone to seminars that have a really, really incredible message, but that just, it doesn't get conveyed, um, whether that's the way that the speaker conveys it through their, their speaking or the way that the slides are put together or the place where it's held and no one knows about the, the mm -hmm. seminar, for example. Um, and so I think I, that's actually, that's sort of maybe the first the first step, that's that's probably the, the closest to the chest way that we can improve our own SciComm as academics. But I think it's really overlooked. I think we're really close to, we're really quick to say, I want to work on SciComm. And so I need to like create a short film or like a YouTube series or a podcast. And I think you, know, you first have to shore up that, that like closest to the chest part and just make sure that you're communicating your own science in, in a really engaging, clear way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Have you always had an interest in science communication or did that develop with grad school and stuff like that? I think innately I've always had a, a bit of an artistic streak in the sense that I, I've always, I thought, I've always thought it's really cool. Um, and I've always had a thought that it's really necessary in, in ecology broadly. But when I went to NC State, I was actually a Southeast Climate Adaptation Science Center Global Change Fellow. That's a, a mouthful, but... <laughs> I was chosen as a global change fellow and we did a lot of science communication training there around climate change. And that's a, a space where, you know, we need, we need that more than ever and more than a lot of other places. And so I, I received some formal training on that. And, and I think it really just piqued my interest and showed me the power and has kind of taken off in my personal and professional life since then. Yeah. Awesome. I guess this is kind of, could have maybe ordered these differently, but this is hailing a little bit back to our talk about mental health in grad school. So what are your hobbies and interests outside of science to give yourself a break from the grind? 
yeah, I, I'm fortunate to live in a really beautiful place here in the great Pacific Northwest. And so I'm a big outdoorsman, whether that's hiking or backpacking or just sort of being on the water or going to a park. I like to take advantage of any opportunity to be outdoors. I think a lot of us got into this field because of sort of an innate love of the outdoors and the wild, wild places. I also, I am really love photography. I think it's sort of my artistic outlet. And so I do some landscape photography. I try to do some, um, some, some other photography and videography. I've gotten a little bit back into painting. Um, and then there's, there's some things that, that uh, the line is blurry between work and, and hobby. And those include, I don't know, like reading, for example, is, um, I stop reading my, my fish literature and I go home and read things that may or may not have to do with fish, but, I, right. but I'm choosing to read that, not for my jobs. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, this brings us to the end of what we call the tough part of the interview and to our final five questions that we ask each of the guests that come on the show. I think they're a little more difficult than the other part of the interview, but you can decide. <laughs> the first one is, what is your favorite fish? This is a cop-out answer given what I do, but I... Man, Pacific salmon can't be beat. They're, they're, the fact that they are fighting against all these things to come back to their natal stream, I mean, how can you not root for that life history strategy? And I think specifically, I would have had to choose one. That would be coho because they're just they're kind of like the athlete of, uh, of the five Pacific salmon, in my opinion. Yeah, coho salmon. Great. All right. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? I think it's going to have to be my second season in Alaska. Um, the first season, I was flailing all over myself trying to figure out how a kid from the Midwest lives in Alaska. <laughs> uh, in the second season, I think there was this sense of, of it coming to an end. I knew I was going to be leaving for grad school. I never thought I was going to be coming back. Uh, and I think I just really kind of savored the, the time that I spent up there. And I knew what I was doing and caught a lot of fish. And I was, wow, that was, that was a great time. Awesome. Kind of a side question. Are you going to get to go back and do fieldwork in Alaska again in your current position? I think so. It's tricky. There's another field. There's a couple other field camps with the Alaska Salmon Program where there's more than two people. And I think I'm going to go to there and do just like a quick, like go up and run a study and come back instead of like running the field camp for two, three months or something like that. But hopefully, fingers crossed. Exciting. All right. What's your dream job and our location? This is a hard question. Um, I think my dream job, realistic or not, would be to be a federal scientist for the National Park Service. Man, the location is tricky. There's so many cool places to go work uh, if I could just choose one. But I think like Glacier or Grand Teton National Park would be just just a dream come true. Yeah. There's no salmon there. <laughs> There are no salmon. There might be some salmon there. (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) All right. If money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? It's kind of funny you ask this, actually. I was just talking with a couple of my friends about, like, if there was a project you could work on in science, what would it be? If, If money wasn't an issue, you could just choose a project. You had, like, an NSF grant, just go do something. And I, I really can't imagine working on a different sub-discipline than what I'm working on right now. I, I just, I think that stabilized topes are the coolest possible thing and combined with salmon being the coolest possible thing. I just, wow, I'm, 
I feel so immensely lucky to be in this spot. And then, you know, working on, on science that was inspired by a mentor, a late mentor that I care a lot about, I think it's just kind of the perfect storm of being really the best possible situation for me. But if I wasn't working in, in, in fisheries, I think I'm really passionate about public lands and to do some science related to that, I think would be really fascinating and, and cool to work on and, and a, a passion project. Yeah, very cool. All right. Our last question is if there's one pointer principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Yeah, I think this goes back to um, my thoughts about leaving a grad program and mental health, et cetera. But this should be fun. Uh, I, I firmly believe in, in working hard, but working with a lot of joy in your work. Uh, and I think we, we need people putting a lot of their energy into big problems in ecological sciences and other places in science. But frankly, better work is done by happy, collaborative scientists. And, and I think that starts, in, in my opinion, with making sure that you're having fun with it. None of us got into ecology to become millionaires. I, I think a lot of us got into this because we love it. And that is not to, to push this narrative that you can't, you shouldn't be able, able to have a successful financial career uh, um, in ecology, because I certainly believe that we need that. But first and foremost, I think you, you should be having fun with it and really taking a lot of pride in, in doing some of the coolest, most important work that, that we need to make sure our, our world keeps, keeps chugging along. So I think that would be my uh, one piece of advice. I love that. All right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was really nice hearing about your work and your experiences, and I'm happy it worked out for you to come on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much. If want to find out more information about uh, what you're working on or get a hold of you, how could they do that? You can reach me at Twitter at, at Ben J. McClough, which is B-E-N-J-M-A-K-H-L-O-U-F or at my UW email, that's B-M-A-K-29 at UW.edu. I'm happy to just talk about science or, or really sort of anything, talk about leaving a grad program. I think we need more resources and I am happy to be a resource uh, confidentially or otherwise. So please uh, reach out. Awesome. Thanks so much. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter, and the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod, or send an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app, or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, have fun with it. Better work is done by happy, collaborative scientists.